All right. Great. Great. Good morning, everybody. I almost pulled the cord and probably made a bunch of stuff come crashing down, but we survived. We are in the third week of a series going through the book of Isaiah, and if you've missed a couple weeks or you're new here for the first time, uh, it's a 12-week series going through the book of Isaiah, and we've split it up into a, a trilogy. So each part of the trilogy is four weeks. The first four weeks of our Isaiah series is called Isaiah, Heirs of Treason. In a couple weeks, we'll start part two, which is called Rise of the Day Star. That may, may, not, may not make sense now, but hopefully by the time we get through it, it will make sense. And then it ends, uh, the last part of the kind of trilogy, if you will, is called The War of the Lamb. Now... I started off last week with a bit of review, and I want to do just again a little bit so we're all on the same page. The book of Isaiah and its message is a story that takes place in the context of a much larger story, and that's the story of the entirety of the Bible. So the book of Isaiah is a story and a message taking place in context to the grand narrative of Scripture, and it's important that we understand all the key plot points. The first key plot points of the story begin in the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, God creates a wonderful, amazing world, and he puts his image bearers, Adam and Eve, into the garden. And he tells Adam and Eve, um, look, serve me, do my will on earth as it is in heaven, uh, eat whatever you want in this amazing garden, keep it up, just don't eat of this one tree, and this one tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, you can do whatever you want, eat whatever fruit you want, just don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there's sort of this way out clause. Humanity, human beings, image bearers, Adam and Eve, do not have to live obediently before God. They don't have to live in harmony with God. They can choose not God and face the consequences of that. Now, in the middle of that story, a character is inserted, and the character is the, the serpent. And What's important about this is if you've been a Christian a long time, you sort of know more about the serpent than you should in the book of Genesis. Um, if you've been a Christian, you know, oh, it's not really just a serpent. That, that's the devil. That's Satan. And here's his motivations, and this is why he's doing what he's doing. Forget all of that. In Genesis, just know, randomly, out of nowhere, a serpent enters into the picture and begins to tempt the image bearers, Adam and Eve. And there's the tree, of the, knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent's like, oh, you should eat it. If you eat of that, you'll be like God. You'll, you'll have your eyes open. And he, he deceives and tricks Eve and Adam into thinking that taking of this tree will, will make their life better and that ultimately God has somehow lied or withheld goodness from him. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, and sin enters into the world. Disobedience to God wills enters in, into the world. And immediately God shows up, and he says, look, there's going to be some consequences for Adam and for Eve, but in addition to these consequences for Adam and Eve, there is also going to be a curse upon the serpent. And the Bible paints a picture for us about what is ultimately going to happen to the serpent. God says that one day... The offspring of the woman, and the word for offspring here is key, sometimes it's translated seed, offspring, uh, it's in Hebrew, it's zerah, key word, keep that in mind. One day the zerah, the offspring, or the seed of the woman, so someone from her line of descendants is going to come and crush or bruise or strike at the head of the serpent. And so there's this image. 
Someday, a descendant, a human being, an offspring, a seed, a Zerah of the woman is going to come and give a death blow to the serpent. But before that happens, there's these two lines of people. There is the line of the woman, which God is saying ultimately someone is good's going to come from that to destroy the serpent. And then there's the seed, the offspring, the Zerah of the serpent. Now again, don't think, I say this every week, but it's, it's the seed of the serpent is not baby snakes. The, the, the Bible is painting a picture for you, and they want you to see that there's these two lines of people, and they're going to be at war with one another. There's going to be enmity between the two. There's going to be people who want to serve God, and there's going to be people who want to serve the serpent. Immediately after the story of Adam and Eve, you get that playing out. You get the story of Cain and Abel. Cain chooses to be team serpent. He's going to be a bad guy, and he's going to kill his brother Abel. Immediately after that story in Genesis, the, the, the best part of Genesis begins, the, the genealogies that say so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. But there's two genealogies listed. There is a genealogy tracing Cain, team serpent, and his descendants. And in that line, right in Genesis, it's just filled with just bad dudes. The sixth generation of Cain is a guy named Lamech. He's a, a polygamous murderer who boasts that his justice will be greater than God's. So bad guy. The other line that goes through Adam and Eve's other son, Seth, is filled with good people. If you're super good, like at Bible trivia, you grew up in children's church, like, you know, like, what was unique about Enoch? See, some of you know. It's like, like, stuff about Enoch. That's in the good line. You can go find out what's good about Enoch after church. And, and like Noah and all these good dudes, like these people, come from the good line. So Genesis starts with these two lines of people. They're at war with one another, and it's tracing them. That is the major plot points that begin in Genesis. Roughly within a few pages in your Bible, you get to Genesis 12, and God looks down upon the earth, and he's like, there's, there's no one righteous. Everyone is pretty much wicked. And this is the second time he's done this, by the way. Between Genesis 1 and 12, there's the story of Noah, and that's another time when God looks down upon the earth, and everyone is team serpent. Everyone is against the will of God. Everyone wants to be God in their own eyes. This time when God does it, he looks down upon the earth, and he chooses a guy named Abraham. And he pulls Abraham out of his wickedness, out of his paganism, out of his rebellion, and says, follow me, and I'm going to make you a promise today. Here is the promise. Through your seed, Abraham, your offspring, your descendants, your Zerah, someone or some people are going to come, and they're going to bless every single human being on the face of the earth. Through the seed of Abraham, all people will be blessed. In addition, later on it says that the seed of Abraham is somehow going to take out the gates of his enemy. This is the plot. This is how the narrative flows. A descendant of Abraham, in other words, someone who is ethnically Israelite, an ethnic Israelite, a Hebrew, a Jewish person, is going to come through this line of people and one day will ultimately be the serpent slayer, the one who will strike the head of the serpent. He will be bruised and harmed in doing so, but one day someone's going to come from that line. So Abraham's people are supposed to be team God. 
and they are supposed to be undoing the wickedness that Team Serpent does. Now, the book of Isaiah takes place more than a thousand years after the promises to Abraham are given. And if you're kind of reading the story for the first time, you should be suspecting or expecting, man, the Israelites, God's people, Team Woman, Team God, after a thousand plus years of being on God's side, they, they got to be doing good work. Like, they have to be like rocking injustice, destroying evil. People should look at Israel and say, Israel is the best place to live on the face of the earth. This is a place where there's justice, there's fairness, there's no orphans, everyone has enough food to eat. Everything is perfect in Israel. But rather than that taking place, we find ourselves a thousand plus years from the promises made to Abraham and the book of Isaiah is being written. And the first five chapters of Isaiah are Isaiah basically saying, Israel, you are evil. God looks for justice in your land, but he sees bloodshed. You take advantage of the orphan and the widow. Woe is to you, judgment is coming. And if you're keeping up with the reading plan, which I hope you are, and doing the memorization that we've talked about, the first five chapters, you know, they're, it's brutal. It, it is pure Isaiah prophet of doom. It is Israel, you're evil, you're wicked, there's injustice, I'm going to take you out, I'm taking you out. Then, don't get me wrong, every so often there's like a little nice verse of hope. It'll be like, oh, but if you return to me and repent, I will wash your sins white as snow. But you're not going to repent, and I'm taking you out. And you know that it's never too late to love me, I'm coming for you. It's just five chapters of it, all right, five chapters of it. In other words, Israel... The people who should bring about the seed to destroy the serpent. Israel, the people who are supposed to be the solution to what's wrong with the world, have become a part of the problem. They've aligned himself with the serpent. In Isaiah chapter 1, God actually calls Israel a seed of evil, a zerah of evil. Now, this is the context for where we're at in Isaiah chapter 6. This is a profound statement that is about to be made. This is the call of the prophet Isaiah, and when God calls Isaiah to be a prophet, he gives him a vision of the throne room. It's sort of mysterious, though, that God waits till chapter 6 to let us know about Isaiah, who he is, how he called him as a prophet, and, and, and kind of give us all the back information. All we've known for five chapters is judgment is coming, and we're living in a time that's really evil and really bad and really corrupt. Then 20 minutes into the movie, you get the backstory of the guy named Isaiah, and this is how it begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The year that King Uzziah died, 749 B.C., so roughly 749 years before the time of Jesus, the king of Israel dies. In addition to that, the death of the king, Israel is corrupt. In addition to that, you need to know that the historical context surrounding these details opens us up to, opens us up to a time of extreme brutality and horror. And so I want to describe to you a little bit about what it's like in 749 BC in the ancient Near East, the world of the Bible. But before I do so, fair warning. Um, parents, if you, got, if you got young children in the room, uh, I'm not going to get into anything specific or, or grotesque or sit on anything too long. It's not going to be sexual or anything like that. But 
you need to know the brutality of the world in 749 BC because it's very difficult to understand the prophets when they say things like, trust in God and don't trust in Egypt if you don't know exactly what's at stake. And so uh, if there's any time you, you, you feel uncomfortable, you feel free to walk out. I know sometimes people always fear walk, walking out. Sometimes, it's, you know, some of you, you even have to go to the bathroom, but you, you, you fear like making the scene and you're like, you hold it till it's, un- and I just think like I'm preaching really well and someone's, you know, um, <laughs> fill in the glory. But um, so just, just know that, fair warning, it's not going to be too long. It's just for the next three, four, five minutes. In 749, Israel loses its king and then there is no king on the throne. In addition, Israel internally is spiritually corrupt. There's wickedness, there's evil, there's injustice. On top of that, the world of the ancient Near East in this time period is a, is a world that's filled with the major powers basically vying for control over that region of the world. Now, Babylon isn't the major superpower that it'll be in, in the next 100 to 200 years, but it's, it's still a player on the scene. Egypt is... Um, Egypt is always a massive player in, in the ancient Near Eastern world, even when they're not at their peak and they're not the super empire. Just know that it, give Egypt a couple hundred years and, and they're back. They're, it's like um, Rocky and Rocky 1 and 2. Even if they get beat up and you think they're down for the count, 10 seconds, they're back up ready to take another beating. Assyria, though, is the new kid on the block. And Assyria is rising to power and they are rising to power very fast. I mean, this is going quick, very, very quick for ancient standards. And the Assyrian people in this time period, in this time period, are some of the most brutal people that have ever lived. I mean, they are brutal. We know this because we have tons of Assyrian art from this time period. And you can tell a lot about a people by their art. What does their art celebrate? What does their art always talk about? What does their art honor? Quick side question. If you look at the vast majority of American art that's consumed, what do we honor and celebrate and focus on? You know what we value. You know what our people are like by the art that's coming out from us. Assyrian art tells us that these people are are, are just brutal. So, like, let's say a king is victorious over a certain battle, and he's going to, like, dedicate something to himself. We're going to take a giant marble slab, and we're going to engrave in it some type of image. Like, a lot of times, there would be, you know, you'd engrave the king sitting on a throne, or you'd, you'd show a picture of the king, like, holding up the rod and declaring some decree. The Assyrians are always like, no, how about we show that one time I tortured a thousand people? Draw that, and I want, I want that to be the first thing you see when you walk into my palace. And that's how they did, there'd be like art that just depicted violence, torture, and brutality everywhere you went. Here's some brief examples, quick examples. Um, this is a, an ins- in stone, it's been reconstructed so you could see it a little bit better, but this is uh, a Syrian taking their prisoners of war, and rather than killing them or sl- selling them off into slavery, they kind of torture them for fun. The guy on the top is most likely having his tongue removed. One thing that the Assyrians were known for in this time period, and really known for, there's a lot of talk about this in, in the ancient documents, is they were known for skinning people alive. Um, and the thing you need to know about the Assyrians, they didn't just skin people alive, they actually made a sport of it. 
the whole game was to skin someone alive and see how long you could keep them suffering alive. So the winner was the one who kept their victim alive the longest. And when you do that, you go, that would make great art in my home. That, you, you get what I'm saying about that this culture is saturated in violence. This is something Babylonians did, and most kings in this time period did similar things. But let's say you're a king, and you've just been defeated. The walls have fallen, and the enemies have overtaken you. You're hiding out in the royal courts. And they come in, and the bad guys don't just, they don't just kill you. What they do is they, they take the royal family, and, and they torture you, humiliate you. But what was often done is you take the king's sons, and you would kill them before the king, and then you would blind the king. You would spear his eyes. And it was a way to say, the very last thing your eyes see on this earth is your children dying. And they'd put fetters on you, hooks in your body, and drag you off into exile to rot away in prison. This stuff is actually recorded in the Bible. So this isn't just a bunch of like extra biblical detail that I'm trying to, to give you. The biblical authors want you to know what's happening to Israel at this time. They include it. This is, this is the Bible, 2 Kings 25, 5 through 7. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. Now we can go on forever with, with the art. There's, there's tons of pictures, but we're not, we're not going to do that because I don't want to hyper-focus on it. But you have to understand the context. Why? In the Bible, as I mentioned, again and again, you'll see prophets telling the kings, do not trust in Egypt. Do not trust in Damascus. Do not trust in Syria. Syria. Trust in the Lord alone. Do not trust the Babylonians. Do not make deals with the Assyrians. Just rely on the strength of the Lord. And if you're like me or you're just like, like a casual reader, you, you always go like, how can these kings of Israel be so dumb? God has delivered them time and time and time again. He showed himself faithful again and again. Why doesn't the king just finally listen to the prophet? You've got to understand what's at stake Let's say Assyria is coming to a city in Israel and the governor of that city gets, gets notice of it and he tells the king of Israel, we have 80,000 Assyrian troops marching to take us out. If you're Israel or a lot of these smaller nations, let's say your force is 20,000 strong at best. Assyria sending 80,000 soldiers with greater, for the time, greater technology, more training. They're brutal, battle-hardened veterans, and you've got like 20 guys with, with weaker weapons and technology to go up against them. Well, what you do in this time period is you'd become a vassal to a suzerain state. It's a vassal-suzerain relationship. And what that simply is, is if you're Israel, you go, okay, 80,000 troops are coming. I got 20,000. I'm going to send a bunch of gold to the king of Egypt. And I'm going to tell him that we will pay homage to his greatness. We love him. We will serve Egypt. We will be like a son to him. And he will be like a father to us. Just when the bad guys come to get us, you got to send some troops to help us. It's, it, it's like happens again and again and again in this time period. It's called the Susurin vassal relationship. The Susurin is the father. The vassal is the son, and they use that language of father-son. 
And it was basically saying the son isn't the father. The son isn't, um, he's not Egypt. He's an independent, autonomous son, but he's still a part of the family. So as long as the son keeps sending dad some money, we'll protect the little guy. In other words, the enemy of your enemy is still a bad guy, so help us out. Now, put stuff into context. I just told you what the Assyrians do to you. It's, it's not like our, our modern warfare where uh, some, some really expensive jets fly over an area and drop bombs and then you die and, and the war's possibly over. They come in and they systematically humiliate, torture, and kill you, your children, your daughter, your wife gets taken up and adopted usually into the harem of the victorious king. In other words, she becomes a sex slave to the guy who just killed your son and blinded you. 80,000 Assyrian soldiers coming. You've got 20,000 soldiers. And a prophet tells you, do not make any deals with the foreign nations. You should just trust in the Lord your God. What do you do? What do you do? If you're honest with yourself, you're probably like, I'm sending as much gold as I can to make a deal with Egypt. And I'm going to trust in the horses and chariots of Egypt rather than trust in the strength of my Lord. This is a picture of a city wall. Most, not most, many wars were fought at this time period through siege warfare. And so siege warfare is both complex and and really simple, but you have a city that has a giant city wall around it, and let's say a giant army is coming who can take you out. You get all your soldiers and civilians, and you go inside the city, and, and, and you let the city walls be a strategic, militaristic advantage over your enemy. And the city walls, are all, they always give you an advantage. They always give you advantage. Well, what developed in human history was siege warfare. And siege warfare just did this. Oh, so you're going to go in your city with your 20,000 troops and not have, fight us 80,000? Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to surround your city, and we're going to camp here for three, four, five, six, seven years. We're going to cut off food and water from entering into your city, so you either starve to death or you come out and face us. And again... This is occurring in the Bible again and again and again. There's passages in the Bible where like the Assyrian people are taunting Israelites as they're trapped into the city. And a prophet tells the leadership of Israel, oh, don't, don't worry about food or water. Don't, don't worry about Assyria. You should just trust in the Lord your God. You feel the weight of what trusting in God means in those moments? Would you do that as a leader? Would you do that as a king? In the time period of Isaiah, all the major powers are going to fight and vie for control of the region. Massive bloodshed and brutality is about to occur. The earthly king of Israel is dead. Picture an empty throne. And internally, Israel is corrupt. And for the first five chapters, Isaiah has said nothing but judgment, but with brief glimmers of hope. It's in that context, that precise context, that Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 tells us this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Yahweh, King of Israel, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled 
the temple. Do you see what he's doing? If you had eyes to see, you would know that even though there is war, violence, brutality, evil, the earthly king is dead and Israel is corrupt, even though all of that is true, if you had eyes to see the most true reality, you would know that the throne is not empty, but that there is a king, a good king, who is high and lifted up and exalted, and he's ruling and reigning, and evil and chaos do not run the day, but the king of Israel still lives. This is powerful imagery. And oftentimes in Isaiah 6, we just run to what the vision looks like. What do the angels look like? You stop and say, no, no. In 749, when the earthly king died and the tyrants encircled Israel and Israel corrupt at the core, there is still a king, a good king, who sits on the throne. The vision goes on. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Again, try to picture that. First off, seraphim is, this is the only time this word in Hebrew is used for a supernatural being. The other time it's used, it appears in in the first five books, the Torah, but it's used to describe snakes, like literal snakes that that are on the ground. But in this case, seraphim is used of a supernatural angelic being. The word at its Hebrew-like core of its roots means burning one or fiery one. So again, add this to your imagery. There is these super, like, angelic, supernatural beings who are fiery. They're the burning ones. They're depicted in art as having a body that's sort of like a snake, but sometimes with a humanoid head and human feet. Supernatural fiery kind of being that sits before the throne of God. It has wings that cover its face because you need to know that even a fiery, supernatural, angelic being is unworthy to look upon the presence of God. Some of its wings block its feet as if to say unworthy, and the other pair of wings keeps it in flight. Picture it. Now, I don't know what you're picturing, but I can tell you with certainty what you should not be picturing. When you picture cherubim, seraphim, angelic host, however you're picturing this, just do not picture them like this. <laughs> Whatever you're doing here, they're not like this. The, the seraphim, the cherubim, they're, they're not little chubby pale babies. I don't know how this art developed like this. Now, this isn't an accurate description either, but I I Googled seraphim, and this is one that came up, and I was like, well, that's not great, but it's still closer than this. Look at this. That is still closer than that. (laughs) This is fiery, supernatural, angelic being, his body like a snake, six-winged creature, keeping its head covered because it doesn't want to look at the presence of God. And there's two seraphim. Each one had six wings. Two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This holy, holy, holy is what we call like a Hebrew super superlative. 
Uh, Hebrew has a way of doing the superlative. What I mean by that is in English, we do fast, fastest, fastest. So just describe something that's the most fast, we say fastest. Uh, And there's ways to do that in Hebrew, but the way you do it like the super superlative. Uh, When I I, um, try to describe stuff to my kids, uh, like because my daughter, whenever she does something, she's at a stage where like if she runs really fast, she'll go, I'm super fast. And I don't just say she's the fastest. I go, yeah, you're, you're like super mega ultra fast, baby. You're, you're fast. That is what the Hebrew is doing. It's not just you're, you're pretty holy, God. This is the most holy, holy, holy. This is the only time the super superlative of used, is used of God in Scripture. And when it is used, it's holy, holy, holy. In other words... Um, you're not going to find in Scripture love, 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 or good, good, good. You're not going to find the super superlative used for any other attribute of God outside of holiness. No love, 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 no good, 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 no nice, 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 but holy, holy, holy. This God is absolute moral perfection and purity, which is really good news if you wanted it to say love, love, love. Because what it means is that whatever type of love God has, it is a holy, holy, holy type of love. However God is good, his goodness is a holy, holy, holy type of goodness. The seraphim tells us that he is the Lord of hosts. The word host in Hebrew, sabah, is often still translated with the word host, and I don't know why, and maybe it's just because I have a very low vocabulary, but uh, what they're trying to communicate is not what I imagine when I see the word host. When I see the word host, like I think like there's a, like a waitress, a waiter, hospitality, like I'm having people over, so I want to be a good host. And so I'm going, oh, so God's, God invited Isaiah up to the fiery angelic beans place, and he just wants to show some hospitality to Isaiah and be a good host. That's exactly not what, what is taking place. Host, sabah, is a, is a military term. It's talking about the armies. The image here is angelic armies. God, when they say is the Lord of hosts, they're saying he's the commander of, in chief of the angelic armies, which would be really encouraging, Right? If you have Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt knocking at your door, you want to serve a king who is all-powerful. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, I'm I'm in God's presence. I'm a sinner. I'm a person of unclean lips. Woe is to me. Kind of literally in Hebrew, it's like, woe is to me, for I am undone. I am coming apart at the very fabric of my being. I mean, ripped apart, because I am not a good person. I am unrighteous, and I am brought before the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. Now, oftentimes, people immediately try to figure out, what's, what type of, what's Isaiah's sin here? What, what does it mean that Isaiah is a man of unclean lip? Does it mean like, like 
he, he curses or he says bad words or he like tells, tells inappropriate jokes or, or does it mean that like what comes out of a mouth of a person often comes from their heart and so he's internally corrupt. And I see this over and over again, trying to figure out what exactly was Isaiah's sin. That is not the point of the text. Again, sometimes we ask questions of the Bible and the Bible isn't concerned with that question. It's trying to answer another question. This is what's being done here. Isaiah is a man of unclean lips because he is a part of a people of unclean lips. In other words, Isaiah's in sin and Israel's in sin. And all of them together are people of unclean lips. But Isaiah is the one as a representative who's brought up to the presence of God. It continues. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he took, taken from the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. First off, this this first line, um, I don't think this is what Isaiah wants you to see, but the first thing I think of is like, okay, so there is this angelic being, a fiery being. He's called the burning one. And he's about to pick up something so hot that he himself, the fiery one, goes, I ain't touching that. I'm going to use these tongs. And then if you're Isaiah, you watch him as he proceeds to take that coal and move to your face. I'm just going, nah, back away. Back away. What are you doing? What are you doing, fiery one? You're half serpent. I knew I shouldn't trust you. Come on, man. Put the same. But he, that's the, this is the image. You have a fiery hot coal, and it gets put upon his lips. That is, his lips are symbolically representing the sin in his life. And the text says that when that happens, the guilt is done away with, and God forgives sin. Now, we get caught up wondering, well, what what was the sin? That's not the point. Here is the point. Isaiah, unclean lips. Israel, unclean lips. Isaiah is brought before God. He knows he deserves judgment. He knows he deserves to die. Woe is to me. But rather than being destroyed, rather than being killed, rather than facing judgment, the man of unclean lips is given grace. And what is true for Isaiah can be true of Israel if they choose to repent from their wickedness. As Isaiah was given grace, so Israel can find grace and forgiveness. But that's not going to happen. Back to doom and gloom. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. So Isaiah is going to get a mission from God. This is the call of the prophet. And what is Isaiah's mission to Israel? This is is what's recorded. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is all Hebrew poetry, and it's, it's difficult to follow, but essentially the message is this. Isaiah, go tell Israel to repent, but know this. As you're doing that, they are going to hear, 
but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they are not going to perceive. And most importantly, their heart is going to become dull. In other words, in your preaching this message, the people of Israel are not going to seek forgiveness. Their hearts are actually going to be hardened. They're going to be a hardened heart people. Think of it like this. Let's say you're a mother, the 25-year-old son, and the 25-year-old son has a massive alcohol problem. And every other day, one day sober, one day getting completely drunk, wasted out of their, out of their mind. And mom says to the 25-year-old son, you know, son, I love you. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to live like this, son. And the son says, ah, oh, come on, Ma. I'm, you know, I'm just having a good time. Me and my friends, we have a good time. It's not a big deal. Not a big deal. We're just having fun. Don't get on my case. I'll be back. Flash forward six months, and let's say this, this every other day thing turns into a full-blown addiction, and now the person is getting just drunk every single day, and they are, are getting drunk earlier in the day. So it's like alcohol time starts at 3 p.m., there's been six months of this. And now mom says, son, you know I love you. You don't have to live like this. We can get help. Whatever it is you're going through, we can figure it out. Six months down the road, full blown into the addiction. How does son respond? Shut up, mom. I'm tired of you always trying to control me. You don't know me. You don't know what my life is like. If you and dad hadn't so screwed up, I wouldn't be like this. It doesn't have to just be with drugs. It could be with anything. This will hold true of your teenager with cleaning their room, and I don't say that lightly. What happens is, even in love, when there's confrontation, you do it enough, and a hardening to the loving message begins to appear. And what was once a loving message of concern is now seen by the people who are trapped in that sin as a way of, to confront someone and to hold them back. And they defiantly shake their fist at you and say, you don't know, you don't understand. Shut up, I don't want anything to do with you. This is what's going to happen to Israel on the whole. Isaiah is going to tell them this message of yes, there's coming judgment, but there's a way out of it but they won't listen and their hearts will become hard. Isaiah's next kind of response is, God, how long do you want me to do that? Just tell me like two weeks because that's going to be horrible. That's a horrible, man. That's a horrible ministry. No one ever repents. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, how long do you keep preaching this message? Until the whole land is desolate. It's a barren wasteland. Everyone's going to get taken out because no one is going to repent. Evil and injustice will overtake the land and eventually Israel's going to crumble from the inside out. And then it goes on and it says, and though a tenth remain in it. In other words, what if there's like this 10% of people, like a t- there's a, a group of repentant people. What if there's a little bit of hope? Although a tenth remain, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it fell, the holy seed is its stump. Oh yeah, there's 10% of people that still have hope of changing their ways. Then fire goes. And what you're supposed to picture 
is a desolate wasteland, like a forest that's had its trees chopped down and then a fire breaks out. There's nothing left. It's very depressing. Now the hope, listen to this last line, the holy seed is its stump. The word seed, zera, offspring, seed, descendant. The holy seed is its stump. So you have this image in your mind of a forest that's been burned down. There's no life. It is all death. But then God says, in the midst of that, even though everyone gets exactly what they deserved, judgment comes upon Israel. A seed, an offspring, a shoot. It's later described in chapter 11. A shoot will come out of the stump. A branch is going to come out of the stump. And this branch, this seed that comes out of the stump, takes our minds back to the very promises of God. God promised Eve, God promised Abraham that one day a seed is going to slay the serpent. And in Isaiah's day, even though all corruption is in the land, even though the king is dead and the earthly throne is empty, even though Babylon and and Syria and Egypt are encircling and the world powers are about to fight in the midst of that chaos and destruction and sin in the land, the message of Isaiah is God is always faithful to his promises. And even when their hearts are hardened and every tree is chopped down and a fire burns through the land, make no mistake about it, a holy seed, a holy shoot will come out of that tree stump. God is always true to his promises. He is faithful. Now back to where we began. Why is all of this message so incredibly important? Because we have to understand, we have to have confidence in this, that in the year King Uzziah died, 749 BC, when no earthly king was on the throne in Israel, when chaos was about to erupt, when the global superpowers were about to destroy and bring brutality and torture and war and violence, when Israel itself was corrupt at its core, precisely at that moment in 749 BC, God takes Isaiah up and gives him a vision and said, if your eyes can see the most true reality You would not see chaos, evil, and destruction ruling the day. You would see that there is a good king who sits on the throne. And in the midst of all of this, he is ruling and he's reigning and he always stays true to his promises. And though the forest burns, the shoot will still arise. Which should be ridiculously encouraging and powerful for every single person who's in this room today. Because we're not 749 BC, but we're today. And the message of Isaiah, and the message of Isaiah chapter 6 is, man, whatever it is that's going on in your life personally or in around the world, there is still a king who is sitting on the throne, and his sovereign purposes always come to fruition. You can take that to the bank. He stays true. Even though trials may come, even though tribulation may come, the grand plans of God always come true. 
So whether it's Assyria, Babylon, or Egypt, whether it's internal corruption, whether it's the death of the king, whatever floods may come, whatever earthquakes may shake the ground, whatever fires burn our cities, you need to know the king reigns from heaven. He is high, exalted, and lifted up. So when you walk into a doctor's appointment for what you think is a routine checkup and you come out with a diagnosis that says stage four cancer, when your house burns down, when your spouse leaves you, when your mother or father dies, when you've been trying to have a baby for so long and you finally thought it was going to happen and another baby is lost, you need to know precisely in those moments that in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this evil, I have a king, he is good, he is holy, 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 and he reigns today. And if your eyes could be awakened to the most true reality, you would live in the midst of this world differently. You would live differently. You would see the world, you would see the problems of the world differently. The last um, couple weeks as a pastor at the church, I, I, I can't tell you, every, every single day, like every two or three hours, I get a phone call or an email of some other horrific tragedy, whether it's death, divorce, some, some thing of abuse, whether it's some, a parent struggling with a child who is in full-blown addiction. Every few hours the last two weeks, there's been something. And so I know that among you, among us as, as a people, there is a lot of pain, there is a lot of suffering, there is a lot of anxiousness. And I know some of you wrestle with anxiousness more than others. The thoughts consume your mind. What I'd like to do as, as we, we close, and we're going to close with a, a song in a, in a few minutes, is we go before God and we remind ourselves of the most true reality. We speak to our soul. Be still, my soul. Know that God is in control. He's ruling and he's reigning. Know that he's good and know that he's holy. What's even better news is that the one who is king, who was protected by two fiery beings 2,000 years ago, told the seraphim to stand down. And he got off his throne. And from heaven he sought us. And even though we, like Israel, have all gone astray. We've all become the evil seed. The holy seed, Jesus, came to defeat the serpent. And what that means is we, like Isaiah, can be clean. You have to own up to the fact that you're a rebellious person. There's a lot that's wrong in the world and there's a lot that's wrong with the world that you're a part of. And you go before your king and you say, forgive me. And because of the work of the cross, symbolically, the angel's coal touches your lips and you find grace and forgiveness. God has taken care of our biggest problems. Life is like a picture a giant boat. And the boat has, it's large enough that there's a thousand people on it. And it's going from one side of the ocean to the other. And in that journey, all kinds of bad things can happen and do happen. Sometimes there's not enough food. Sometimes people attack people. I mean, just living on the boat isn't great. But the boat will get to its destination. 
you need to know that in this life, you will have trouble. There's going to be some bad things that happen, painful, horrible things. But Christ himself is the captain of your boat. And despite what's going on in that boat, the captain will get the boat to the shore. His sovereign purposes will come to fruition. They will find their answer in Jesus. Christ gets the boat to the other side. In the world, on the boat, you will have troubles, but in the big picture, God gets you to the other side. And so, worship team, come on up. And what I'd like to do is just, especially for those of you who are in a time of, man, you feel like Israel in 749, just you've been hit hard with some things. You're going through some problems. Maybe it's not massive. Maybe it happened five years ago. Maybe it happened last week. Maybe it's huge. Maybe it's small. But you you have anxious thoughts. Um, What God would have of you today is that you would not trust in Egypt. You would not trust in Assyria. You would not trust in Babylon. You would not trust in anything except you would lean on the Lord and his spirit. And so in this time as we sing this closing song, um, even if you don't know it, reflect on the words and say, God, I've got anxiousness. I'm a fearful person. I'm stressed. I worry about this, this, and this, and I, I, I need a vision of you on the throne, and I need to give you my problems. Father God, uh, we come to you today as, as a, a broken people, a rebellious people, but we know you're good, and you are faithful, and you forgive us, and that when we doubt your love for us, we can look to the cross. And so in, this closing mom- in these closing moments, um, for those who are overwhelmed, who have anxiousness, who are scared about their personal problems or the problems in the world, I pray that you would give us a vision, that you would let us know ultimate reality, that you are on the throne, you are ruling and reigning, and at the end of the day, despite the problems of this world, we have the best king, and he is for us, not against us. In Jesus' name, amen.